If you have your Bibles, let's open up to John chapter 5. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And a few things to note as we begin this story, just a little bit of review, and, and as we walk into this particular story that I read for us this morning, is that John, ha- John is, is setting up this retelling of the life of Jesus, that as he retells the life of Jesus, like the other gospel writers do, they have their own aims, their own things that they're trying to accomplish. John has some things that he's trying to accomplish. And one of the things that he does as he sets up the narrative is one of the things that we're going to see Jesus do is that every episode in the gospel, Jesus is coming in contact not only with doing these signs, but he's also coming in contact with a, with a significant institution in the life of first century Judaism. He's coming into contact with these institutions, with these practices, with these things that are kind of part and parcel to what it meant to be um, Jewish in the first century. And so as he comes in contact with these, we're going to see. So like at the wedding in Cain of Galilee, he turns water into wine, but what does he use in order to gather the water? He uses purification jars, and this, 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 this practice of doing ritual purification before meals and other things that Jesus is going to show that he's actually going to ruin purification. He's going to ruin it by putting the best wine in the world in these things, right? That he, this idea of purification, that he comes in contact with this practice, this institution, but he fulfills it, and he doesn't just fulfill it, he just... He blows it out of the water with God's presence. We see with Nicodemus, the rabbi, that he comes into contact with the teacher of Israel. And the teacher of Israel is told, hey, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But Jesus comes and he, he stymies the teacher of Israel. We saw with the woman at the well that he goes to the well of the patriarchs, those who, the, the fathers of Jacob, I, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, here's this well that's been there forever, and Jesus says, I don't have well water for you, I got living water for you. I got, I got running water. I've got water that you have no idea about. And so every time in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to come into one of these places and do a sign, do a miracle. We're also going to see that there's something about what, what, the, what God has revealed in the past in the Old Testament that may have been understood or partially misunderstood and is now going to be fulfilled in who Jesus is. And that's what we have today in this particular story as we talk about Sabbath the practice of Sabbath, and even as we see Jesus offer the third sign, there are going to be seven signs because seven's the number of completion. Like I've said before, if this is Sesame Street, the Gospel of John is brought to you by the number seven. Okay, so he's going to be, this is going to be the third sign, and we're going to see another institution, a practice within the life of the nation of Israel that Jesus is going to come and make clear that he is fulfilling. All right, you guys with me? I mean, that's where we're going today. We'll see where where else we go, but let's see if we can get somewhere. Open up to John chapter 5, and let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of the pool and the water. So 5.1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All right, a little bit of um, 
geography. I was going to put up some pictures, but the pictures won't necessarily help. Um, but you can ask somebody because they go to the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate is a gate on the northern end of, of uh, the city of Jerusalem. The eastern end is where the Golden Gate is. That's where, uh, uh, that's where the Mount of Olives is, is. But on the northern end is a gate. Uh, how many people have been to the Sheep Gate? Raise your hands, everybody. Come on. If you went to Israel with us, thank you very much. We've been to the Sheep Gate. We walked through the Sheep Gate. We didn't see any sheep there. Um, although even today, there is a sheep market that is at the Sheep Gate in Israel. It would be where, if you were a shepherd in Bethlehem, which is only uh, you know, a number of miles away from, from, uh, from Jerusalem, but you might have shepherded sheep that you would then come up to Jerusalem to sell for sacrifice or for other things, this would have been the gate that you would have come in through. So maybe David would have come in through this gate or would have sold sheep or something like that, but it is the sheep gate. It's also called the Lion's Gate. It's also called Stephen's Gate. So Lion's Gate Films is named after that. All right, no extra charge for that. Okay, um, so the sheep gate, the gate, and the gate is actually adjacent to the temple court. So the temple court makes up this portion of the wall, and then right outside that, that's where this gate is. And as you walk through this gate, off to the right, there is a, there's a place, it's called, the, it was, in that day it was the Pool of Bethesda. Today, it's St. Anne's Church, and we went to St. Anne's Church, and we sang in St. Anne's Church. One of the things about St. Anne's Church today is that the acoustics are awesome, so we went in and we sang. We did you all proud, by the way, worship team, we did you proud. Kirsten was there as well. Anyway, the, the sheep gate, by this gate there was a pool. Now, the interesting thing about this pool is that for centuries and centuries and centuries, there was no pool there. Because of the destruction of Jerusalem, after about 300 AD, there's no pool there. And so when, this, when, when, when people are looking at this and the historicity of this account, there were, the pools were not actually discovered until 1966. And so people were like, well, they're just, you know, John is just bringing this up because he's talking about, he's symbolizing all this stuff. But then they found these pools after the Six-Day War, and they were like, oh, I guess these are real pools. And so this is what it would have looked like after discovering some of the aqueducts that led there. And the, and the pools that were there, um, there it would have been this. It would have, you would have had these two pools that were side by side, and they would have been surrounded by, on four sides by roofed colonnades, col- walkways that were shaded by roofs. And then right down the middle of the two pools, there was another walkway with a shaded colonnade, a fifth shaded colonnade. So in this, when it talks about that this was actually discovered, and so John is like vindicated in his description of this in 1966, but it has this idea that you could, you could go there today and you can actually walk down to where the pools would have been and you could see some of the, the, the moorings for how these things would have been put together. But it says that there are two pools f- surrounded by four colonnades with shaded covers um, and in between the two pools was a fifth colonnade. And it says that in the shade of these covered areas, the text says in 5.3, in these shaded areas, which if you ever go to Jerusalem, you are typically looking for shaded area. Okay? So in these shaded areas lay a multitude of what the text says, sick, invalids. And then it explains, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, the text originally written probably ends right there. And one of the questions you have to ask is, why are all these people hanging out by these pools? And this is where, okay, this is, I'm going to go a little bit of geek mode 
Hang with me for just a second, because one of the things, so the question is, why, why is this place, why are all these people here? Or um, another way to explain this little geek mode is, what happened to verse 4? Look at your Bible. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. And you're like, what the heck happened to verse 4? All right, let me explain what happened to verse 4. Nobody took it out. Okay, I'm, I, here's the deal. Nobody took out verse 4. Here's what happened. Originally, the, the, the way the Gospel of John was written, it ended in 5.3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The readers of John would have understood why these people were there. But no one else after that, don't know, we, we don't understand why these people are there. And so, a well-meaning scribe at some point added the explanation, they were waiting for the stirring of the waters. And you're like, okay, it still doesn't totally explain what the heck the stirring of the waters means. So then a few centuries later, another scribe adds another phrase. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And you're like, okay, well that explains some of it, but doesn't explain everything. And then yet another scribe adds another phrase. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. All right. So here's the deal. By the time of the 1500s, this is so geek mode, and I apologize ahead of time, but hang with me. By the time of the 1500s, this explanation was standard in all of the Greek manuscripts that were available and being used. In Europe, that is. But in Egypt and Syria, the manuscript evidence that is there, this verse was not in there. And so at the Reformation, reformers, one of the things they did was they started to gather different manuscripts together and say, well, which, which ones are original? Which ones bear witness to an original reading? Like, did people add in things and whatnot? And what they found was that these manuscripts in Egypt and in Syria were much more superior to the ones that had made their way all the way to Europe. And so what, what, this is what we call textual criticism, okay? It's what we call textual criticism. But all this to say... Um, the reason why your modern most modern translations will not include it in the text, but will put it in a footnote. Does your how many people's Bibles have a footnote? Okay, good. How many people um, have it actually in the text of your Bible? If you have a King James or a New King James, it will include it in the text. Okay, but if you have another modern translation like the ESV or the NIV, it will include it in a footnote. All right? That's just a little bit about your Bible. No extra charge for that. Okay? And that is a little geek mode. You can start listening again if you started to tune out there for a little bit. That's okay. I get it. Textual criticism is not like the most sexiest thing when you talk about your Bible, but it's something that we're going to pay attention to. We're actually going to do when we get to chapter 8, chapter 7, the story of the woman caught in adultery, I'm going to do a whole podcast on that story and the textual tradition behind it. Okay, or to say that's not behind it in, in this case. Okay, you guys with me? All right, thank you. I'm, it's great. You see the eyes rolling back in heads. It's great. So the explanation, the explanation, the real explanation is this. Why are all these people there? The explanation, so the waters of the pools, since these pools, the pool of Bethesda, was fed by aqueducts from other places as well as seasonal springs. And so when these seasonal springs would start to run, there would start to be this, these little holding areas where pressure would build up, and once the pressure was built up in these outer chambers, that the water would come rushing through the pools. 
And when the waters came rushing through, it became a superstitious thing saying, why is the water running through? The water's being stirred up. And the tradition became that an angel of the Lord was stirring up the waters. And the superstition then became, hey, if you jump in when the angel of the Lord is in there, then you'll be made whole. The holiness of that water will make you whole. And what we see is that this place then becomes kind of a parking ground for people who need healing. It probably becomes a center for places that people are, like doctors and people who are trying to heal people. They start to gather in this place because the the hope of actual medical healing or the hope of superstitious healing is here. And one of the things that we actually find in 1966, when they started to do the excavations of this area, they actually found some statues of the Greek god Asclepius. And Asclepius is the god of healing in Greek culture. And I think one of the most interesting things about Asclepius is that Asclepius is a guy who holds a staff and on his staff is a snake. Does this sound familiar to anything? I mean, Jesus already talks about when Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness and he talks, Moses does this in the book of Numbers and then we have this Greek god Asclepius doing it as well. And so in the Jewish world, there becomes this kind of syncretistic superstitious practice that if you want healing you go to this place and it's this mix of jewish folk religion and and syncretism and greco-roman gods and um, i think what's what's interesting about this is that everybody's trying to get in the water right here's the thing when jesus heals this guy does he let him get in the water no because Jesus wants to make it sure that everyone knows this is not part of the superstition. This is not to be attributed to the, to a, the whatever angel of the Lord or the waters or whatever. John wants to make it clear that when Jesus heals, he doesn't need the superstitious water. He doesn't need the god Asclepius to jump on board. He, doesn't need, he actually doesn't even need the place. So anyway, a little bit of extra on that one just so that we, we can see um, what, what's going on. But the pool had become a collection area for the sick. Okay, so let's talk about um, the play. And so these pools have become a place of superstition, of encroaching paganism, as well as syncretism and Jewish folk belief. Um, so, let's, so that's the place. That's the place. Let's keep going. Look at verse 5. Let's talk about the man. Let's talk about the man that Jesus is going to heal. 5-5. Five, five, five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me. So there is this man. If we're going to use modern terminology, this man is a paraplegic. Nobody calls people in wheelchairs paralytics anymore. They call them paraplegics. They are paralyzed. And this man um, cannot use his legs, uh, he, and that's, that's what qualifies him essentially as what the Bible refers to as a paralytic. He is a, para, a paraplegic. Now, um, in 1996, at the Society of Biblical Literature, it's a um, nerd conference for all biblical scholars, I've been, um, it's, it's a wonderful place um, if you're into that sort of thing. But um, at, at the 1996 conference, um, there was a scholar who came up and gave a keynote address. His name was Dr. Dwight Peterson. 
a biblical scholar in his own right, but he was paralyzed from the waist down. And he gave his presentation from a wheelchair, and his topic was uh, the paralytics that Jesus heals in the Gospels. And he gave background on what essentially the medical conditions are like for paraplegics in the 20th century as well as in the first century. He spoke of the challenges of being a paraplegic in the 20th century, but also of the exponential challenges of being a paraplegic in the ancient world as well as in the developing world today. A few things that he talked about that were overwhelming challenges. The first would be just mobility, the ability to get around. Mobility. You were reliant on other people. There were no wheelchairs in the ancient world. Livelihood. How do you make a living as a paraplegic? He talked about social isolation that comes. We'll talk a little bit about that. But Dr. Peterson also spoke about the challenge of simple hygiene. When you do not have bowel or bladder control, as most paraplegics do not, the portrait then painted of this man in John chapter 5 is that this man would have been trans- had to be transported from place to place by other people unless he crawled on the ground, as many in the developing world today do. Most of his income came from begging or charity, from friends or family. And if he did not have bladder or bowel control, his hygiene problem would have been significant. People probably stayed away some distance. His hands, used for mobility, would have been rough and torn and dirty, from the dirt and stones of the street. Suppose before we move on from this, I want to give a shout out to a ministry that we've been connected with my, my family and the other churches that I've worked at called Free Wheelchair Mission. Has anybody heard of Free Wheelchair Mission? Free Wheelchair Mission has made it. So they find these, they, they send these plastic chairs, you know those stacking plastic chairs? They send them with bicycle tires and bicycle wheels. They basically found a way to make wheelchairs out of things that would be available on hand in developing countries, like bicycle wheels, um, as shopping cart wheels, um, and whatnot. And they, they basically put these things together, and they get people off the ground. They get people who are paralyzed from the waist down. They get them off the ground. It's an amazing ministry, and it's local. It started here in Southern California. It's awesome. It's an amazing ministry. So shout out the Free Wheelchair Mission. Look them up. Give. They're a great, mini- a great ministry. Um, but this man, this man that we had just learned about, this man had been in this situation for 38 years. Probably, probably the senior member of the pool of Bethesda. He had been there the longest. And we don't know, we don't know if maybe people, his, his family members would drop him off there so that he could beg and, and, and get charity from people or, or, if he would, or if he would actually drag himself across wherever he lived to that place every day in the hope that maybe somebody would help him into the water or just in the in in whatever hope that he might have had. The question is, what hope did he have? 
after 38 years. And I, I think in the, in the passage, the implication, the implication is that he had given up hope. The implication is he had given up hope. So in 5.5, one man who had been there as an invalid for 38 years, and the inclusion of the 38 years is probably to underscore that the man, that essentially that the man was, was no longer, not only, no, no, he would all, his explanation was, I can't get into the water before someone else would get there. But after 38 years, he had stopped trying probably. It was just, I mean, how many people had he seen come and go from the pool area? And I don't know what it is about Jesus. Je- Jesus likes to find the hardest cases, right? <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe that's just because that's the heart of God. He just finds, he finds this man. He finds him. He looks around and he's like, all right, who's been here the longest, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, he doesn't heal everybody that day at the pool. He just chooses this guy. 5-6, when Jesus saw him lying there, and knew he had already been there a long time, he asked the question, do you want to be healed? Now, this question has puzzled commentators. Because I, look, to me, my mind, it might, be, it might simply be me and not you, but my mind goes immediately to total bitter sarcasm. Like, no, Jesus, I just want to sit here by this magical pool for my health, right? Like, uh, do I want to be healed? Like, what kind of a question is that? Could you imagine, like, he's like, look around, why am I here? Of course I want to be healed. Now, the man, he doesn't go sarcastically, and there's been a lot of psychologizing of this man, and there is some evidence that he was a little bit of a, of a grumpy dude. There's a little bit of evidence of that. Like, it's different than the blind man who's healed who, like, sticks up for Jesus. This guy, like, turns Jesus over later. He's like, oh, yeah, you guys want to find this guy? Like, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of wishy-washiness, and we don't want to, like, necessarily, like, blame this guy. But for 38 years, he'd been on the ground. We don't even, the evidence is probably that he doesn't even look up at Jesus. Like, how do you address Jesus when people are always talking to you up like this? You, you might just talk down. Do you want to be healed? For John as we read in John, John for his readers, we as readers are like, we're, we're anticipating the boom, right? When, when we as readers, John is like, hey, guys, look, the creator of the universe, the guy who made legs and muscles and everything, he's coming into this pool with all these sick people and there's this guy, worst case scenario, he's here. As readers, we're like, we're waiting for it. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for it. But this guy isn't expecting it. Nor is anyone else. It's not the angel of the Lord who's walked into this pool area. It's not the God Asclepius who's walked into this pool area. It's the God of the universe saying, do you want to be made well? And we as the readers are like, just say yes. Come on, man. Come on, you can do it. Say yes. He's going to give it to you. He wants to give it to you. And I think for one thing, look, if that's, if, as you're reading this, just as we stop, okay, when we're reading and we're like, dude, just say yes, just say yes, you know what that is? That's you recognizing that the God of the universe wants to enter in and have compassion on people. I don't want to go past that too quickly because as we read, sometimes we get, sometimes like we just fly over things, we don't slow down, or sometimes we have little, we, we don't really recognize this, but if you're reading this, and, and there's, as you read this and you hear this, you're like, oh man, Jesus is going to do something for that guy. That's a great instinct. 
I, I just want to stop and I want to affirm that instinct. When you're reading this and you're like, Jesus is going to do something for that dude. Jesus is going to do something for that dude. I can't wait to see what Jesus does for that dude. If that is your instinct, let's bottle that sucker up and let's take it out these doors. That is a beautiful instinct. When you see a problem, when you see an issue, when you see something going wrong and you're like, Jesus wants to do something there. It's like this anticipation, oh my gosh, Jesus wants to do something. It's part of our values, right? Anticipating that God will move. When we see a problem, when we see an area, when we see something that has not gone right that needs healing, and we're like, Jesus wants in. He can do something there. That's something I think we need to, we need to pause and we just need to say, like, let's just pray right now. God, would you grow in us? that anticipation that you want to move. We thank you that you have placed that in our hearts. Would you grow it in our hearts? Okay, prayer done, okay? But I, I, don't, want to go, I don't want to pass over that because I found that as I read this, I'm just like, dude, just say yes. Just say yes, you don't even know what's going to happen. It's going to be awesome. Let's keep that going. Let's keep that going as we walk out these doors today. So we feel the anticipation. So then we get the explanation, verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another gets in before me because I can't walk, and I don't have a lot of friends. And maybe we tried it before and it didn't work. And in 5.8, Jesus doesn't say, well, here, let me help you into the water. Jesus doesn't say, well, if you just have enough faith. Jesus doesn't say, what does he not do? He doesn't do a ton of stuff, but what, all he says is he says, hey, why don't you get up? Why don't you pick up your bed, your mat, and why don't you just walk away? And it says in 5.9 five, in that once the man was healed, he picked up his bed, and he walked away. And the healing is complete. It doesn't say really what the response was. We do know later that um, this wasn't totally instantaneous because Jesus has a chance to slip out before anybody really recognizes that Jesus is there, which is kind of a cool thing that Jesus does at all. Cool and, like, confounding at the same time. Like, every time Jesus performs a sign in the Gospel of John, he kind of slips away. He does it, either does it in secret or he does it from a distance like last week with the, with the healing of the official son, he does it from distance, so they don't really, there's, there, the connection to the sign and Jesus is tenuous. The healing is complete. The sign has been performed. The readers rejoice. God has shown compassion on a hopeless man. But the point of the story and the point of the sign is then revealed in the story. And there's one little note. And whoever divided up the verses didn't even figure out how to divide this into its own verse. It's the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. Like, if there's, if there's music to this, it's like, it's like, wah, wah. You know, like, this is, you know, all this great stuff has just happened. But that day was the Sabbath. And it's like Debbie Downer has shown up, Right? And it's just like, oh, okay, well, what's going to happen now? 
What's gonna, it produces essentially the sign of God's compassion and God's power and God's presence in the person of Jesus has now produced a controversy. It's now come head to head with one of the institutions and the understanding of God's institution of the Sabbath in Israel. And so here's the controversy. It is one of those things, like you read this, you're like, oh, there's, and this is where, for me, as, as a preacher, I'm like, man, I want this message to be about God's compassion and God's love and whatever. And like John is not telling, like it is part of the story. That's a wonderful thing. But the main point of the story is about Jesus confronting the institution of Sabbath as it's understood. And I'm like, God, like I'm not sure that, is that what my people need to hear? <laughs> like, but that's what John, John wants to make it clear that Jesus has come and he knows best about what Sabbath is means as much as as much as we do we celebrate the power of god we celebrate the compassion of god this is about the controversy of the sabbath look at 5 9 at once the man was healed he took up his bed and walked now that day was the sabbath so in 5 10 the jewish leaders i'm just going to add because when he talks about the jews he's talking about the jewish religious leadership the kind of the elite jewish religious leadership in that area in Jerusalem. So the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, hey, hey, you, it's the Sabbath. Why are you carrying your mat? You're not allowed to carry your mat. What had happened over the years is that um, after the command, the Sabbath regulations that are given in Torah, there's an there's a oral tradition that begins to develop and then gets codified in the Mishnah around the two, second century B, A.D., um, and they, they come up with 39 areas of work that you cannot do on the Sabbath. 39 areas of work that you cannot do, that you are prohibited from doing on the Sabbath. And one of those things is carrying stuff. You can't carry stuff. It's too close to work. People make a living carrying stuff from place to place. You can't do that on the Sabbath. So verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Who is this guy? We got 39 ways all the rabbis have agreed. Who's this guy? Who's the man who said, take up your bed and walk? Verse 13, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and the crowd was in that place. And so he's like, look guys, I'd love to tell you, I don't know. At the time, I was on the ground. I didn't really look up to see. You know how many people go by me every day? Some people just throw a little money at me. You know, I didn't really look up and see. And he wasn't giving me any money, so I didn't really make any eye contact. So, and he slipped away before I could get up. And there were so many people around that were excited that I was standing up that I didn't, I, I kind of lost him in the crowd. Now, the pool of Bethesda, like I said, is adjacent to the temple court. It actually makes sense that the man would go into the temple after he had been healed. It's right there. It's, it's literally right across the street. And that he could walk right into the temple court and he might offer thanks, thanks to, to God that he had been healed. He might have been going to present himself to the priests like lepers do to say, hey, I've been made whole. I've been made whole. I can come in now. Also, after 38 years, he was not allowed in. He wasn't whole. 
He could not enter into the courts with praise. Not only could he not walk, but he was not whole. He could not come in as blemished as he was. So here comes this guy, first time in 38 years, got the mat on the shoulder, coming into the temple court, and they're like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, I don't know. Like, I hadn't really paid attention to Sabbath regulations before because I couldn't do anything. The first time in 38 years, he would be able to carry his mat. The first time in 38 years, he'd be able to go into the temple. The first time in 38 years that he'd be able to walk across the street without dragging himself across the street. This no doubt was a cause for the celebration of the man. I'm walking, I'm carrying my mat. And for the readers who see this, they see this as an act of celebration. And as in the Gospel of John, there is this dichotomy. There are those who are in the light and can see the truth of what's going on, and there are those who are darkened and cannot see what's going on. And in this case, some people do not see this as an act of celebration. They see this as an act of Sabbath-breaking. And John is, is showing that there are people who get Jesus and there are people who do not get Jesus. And as all the signs in the Gospel of John, all the signs, if you go and you look at all of the seven signs, there's always going to be some confusion, some misunderstanding, whether it's in the asking or the interpretation of the event. They see the celebration as Sabbath-breaking, and they want to know who's responsible. And it is interesting, Jesus has done all of his signs for some reason, in, either in secret, like the water-to-wine thing, he only does it for the servants. They don't, even the head, only the servants know what happens. And then with the, the, the official, it's from a distance. And then later on with the feeding of the 5,000, he's going to have everybody gather together, and he's just going to start handing out bread. They don't totally understand what's going on. They see the celebration of Sabbath breaking. They want to know who's responsible. Jesus has slipped away after performing this sign. 514. Afterward, Jesus found the man. He found him in the temple. Again, the guy's like, I can go to the temple. I can worship. And he says, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is difficult. Like, was his, was his illness because of sin? Now, it, it, it's pretty clear. Later in chapter 9, the man born blind, the, the disciples will ask, why is this man blind, born blind? Was it his sin or was it the sin of his parents? And Jesus will say, it's not because of any sin that anybody committed that this guy was blind. And it's, it's clear that n- not every disease is because of human sinfulness. Now, I guess the idea is, though, f- the fallen world is a cause for infirmity. And the fallen world is because of sin, uh, but there might be, and, and in, in Scripture there are examples where people who do sin do come ill, and their sickness is because of their sin. And there, there, is, some, there is some evidence that chronic anxiety and other things like that might lead to disorders or, or things like that, although I would be very hesitant to, to, like, if you have a cold, to say, well, what'd you do? Right? 
except for, you know, be around sick people. I don't know. Like, I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't take that out of here. I do wonder if there's a little bit of irony that's going on, that Jesus is maybe a little bit pushy and teasing or something like that. That would fit in with the Gospel of John. But I would just say this. It's a, it's a kind of a difficult saying of Jesus, and I don't entirely know what to do with it, okay? So I'm not going to stand and say I know, you know, all the answers here. I, I don't know exactly what to do with this. I do know in the Bible there are sometimes people sin and illnesses come upon people, but I think it's pretty clear from Scripture and otherwise that all sicknesses are not because of some sin that has been previously committed, okay? And I think that's, I think that's mis... I think that would, be, that would be unfortunate if you have a sick friend to come at them and say, well, unless you repent, you're not going to get well. Like, I, I don't think that, that's not, that's not the bedside manner that I'm going for, okay? And I don't think that would be fair for, the, for anybody at Taft Avenue to do that as well. And I would caution any other pastoral, you know, person to assume that anyone that is in the hospital is because of some sin that they've committed, okay? So just fair warning on that. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here, okay? All right. Um, so, but what this does, look at verse 15, the man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And then in verse 16, it begins what we understand as um, this begins, in verse 16, verse 16 to 18, begins what we would call um, a, an acknowledgement that Jesus is on trial. Verse 15, or verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Now, one of the things, that word persecuting, actually in the Greco-Roman world, that word actually means prosecuting. And a lot of times we think about the trial of Jesus. If you know anything about the Gospels, you think about the trial of Jesus. You think about immediately before the crucifixion, they, they try him and sentence him. It's kind of a kangaroo court, court but they, they bring him in. Um, and they, they have a trial, and sometimes you talk about the trial of Jesus, and that's it. In the Gospel of John, John wants to make it clear, when the God of the universe comes down in human flesh, he is immediately put on trial by the powers of the world. The trial begins when he shows up. And here, John is making it clear that as Jesus shows up, that Jesus is now officially on trial by the Jewish leaders. They're prosecuting him. And the first reason why, there's two reasons. The first reason is they're doing it because he's doing these things on Sabbath. He's a Sabbath breaker. And in Numbers 15, you know what happens to the guy who picks up sticks on the Sabbath? What happens to him? He gets stoned. He gets thrown. They throw stones on him until he's dead. They kill him with stones. Like religious zealotry happens. If you break the Sabbath, you're going to get killed. So Jesus is a Sabbath breaker, and they're now thinking about, well, how do we get rid of this guy, not just politically, but how do religiously, he is flaunting this disobedience. And then Jesus defends himself, it says, in 517. He says, my father is working until now, which is not a controversial thing in the, in, among all the rabbis in, um, in, in Judaism, there was a clear understanding that even though God institutes the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God took, rested on the seventh day. It's very clear among the rabbis, they're like, look, God, can't, God doesn't stop working. God holds everything together. God's sovereignty doesn't take a day off. Like, all the rabbis knew God continues to work. But Jesus says, my father is working until now, 
and I am working as well. And you can see in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more. They're already prosecuting him, but they're seeking all the more to kill him because he's a blasphemer too. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. God is working, I am working, and here's the deal. One of the big questions, one of the big questions in all the Gospels is, who speaks on behalf of God? Who represents God? And the Jewish religious elite say, well, Moses is here, and we've interpreted Moses, and we represent God's voice, and Jesus is saying, I am representing God. He's my Father, and He sent me. I am the empowered representative of the Father. And they're like, we're going to kill you. Okay, Maybe not everybody, but certainly, again, the zealotry, Jew, uh, Jerusalem has always been a place of religious zealotry. It still is today. Now here's the deal, as we kind of land the plane here. If you're here today, you have probably already acquitted Jesus. Right? Like he's been on trial in your life, you've, you've looked at him, and you've already said, not only is he innocent, but I'm going to follow him. Okay, that's, there's a very good chance if you're here and you're worshiping and you're singing, you're singing um, uh, all my fears I lay at your feet, you know, you're already, you've already acquitted Jesus in the trial. Now, maybe you haven't. Maybe you're here and you are taking a good look at Jesus. And what I would say is, look, Jesus is here to give you life. If, you, if he's still on trial, I would say this. Jesus is here not to break Sabbath rest. He is here to fulfill it and to give you life and to give you rest. Let me just say this. Jesus is here to give the wholeness and health and wellness and salvation that Sabbath rest was meant to provide. But it's also, if you've been around the church any amount of time, there's always questions about, is it okay to do this on a Sunday? Is it okay to do this on a Sunday? Do we, do we have to o- obey Sabbath? Or um, are we free from Sabbath? Or do we need to put Sabbath practices in our lives? And let me just say this. The Sabbath command in Genesis chapter 1, and as we enter into the new year, I think this is a good chance for us to think about our patterns. Maybe some of you already have. And you're like, what is my, work, my work-life relationship? You know, how, how is that going? Am I resting? What am I doing for my health? These are all good questions. Maybe I'm the only person who asks those questions in the new year, but maybe you are. And if you are, let me just put forth a couple of ideas for you. The Sabbath command in Genesis 1 is really amazing, especially if you think about the context in which the, the people of Israel received it. The nation of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. They had been told, you are brick makers, you make bricks. And there are no days off. It's 24-7. You make bricks. It's not like eight to five, brick maker. No, it's all day, every day, no rest. You're slaves. And so when you come out, when he comes out, Moses receives the Torah from, from, from God. And one of the things that God, the first thing that he says is, God made this, God made this, God made this. And then on the seventh day, he commands his people to stop working for a day. I mean, you think about that. If you lived your whole life as a slave, not only is that rest life-giving, but it's evidence that there is somebody who has more authority than your taskmaster 
that their command overrides that command. Rest, rest becomes, rest becomes a life-giving thing in and of itself. Okay? So rest, that, that original command for rest to stop working, is an amazing command. Rest is life-giving. And you'll, you would want to protect that sense of life-giving, which is why the rabbis came up with those 39 forms of work that were prohibited. At the same time, let's take the, let's take the, let's take the, uh, the cue from the paraplegic. If you've not been able to walk for 38 years, you're probably, all you want to do is walk. You can't get enough of walking. You probably want to carry everything. Can I carry this? Can I carry this? Can I, how, how much can I lift? Like, what, what do I want to do? Like, I would just imagine if you couldn't do it, you would just be, I want, and, the, and those acts, those activities would not be things that are diminishing your life. They would be giving you life. The very opposite, like doing a little work would be life-giving. And I think what, the, what, what we're seeing here is when Jesus comes and he, he, he confronts the 39 ways that, of not doing it and he says, What's the purpose of Sabbath? And in the other Gospels, we read that it's not that the Sabbath, it's not that man was made for the Sabbath, it was that the Sabbath was made for humanity, to give life. And this is what I would say, is that what he's saying is that, look, what the Sabbath is, this is an opportunity for you to do something that gives you life, or to stop doing something that robs you of that life. If you feel like work is robbing you of life, you got to take a break. If you feel like there are things, though, that you do that give you life, that energize you, that's what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is to make humans thrive. I think rest is a key part. I think we all, if you work. But here's the thing. If, if you... If you're retired and you don't do anything, well, for one, I would say... Um, We never stop working. God made us as working beings. Work is before the fall in Genesis chapter 1. Like when God makes humans, he says, hey, I've got stuff for you to do. And that's not part of the, it's not part of the curse. So work should be, work is something that we always do. Even if you're retired, I hope you have, God will put work before you, okay? But the idea is that when we have our Sabbath, when we practice Sabbath, we do things that give us, that refresh us, that give us life. Oftentimes that will be resting. Other times that will be maybe doing some things that give us life that might look maybe a little bit like work, but give us life, maybe a hobby, maybe some activity. It's not just being sedentary. The Sabbath is about thriving. The Sabbath is about thriving. And so Jesus in this passage moves us to kind of re-examine what Sabbath is and what Sabbath is not. And what we find is that one of, those, one of those misunderstandings about Sabbath is one of the things that puts Jesus on trial and becomes a charge against Jesus. But we want to look at Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, if there's, something, if there's something that gives me life that I do not know, I want to, break, I want to bring that into my Sabbath, my Sabbath habits. And if you need to break in, if you need to make me rest or you need to give me something, you need to refresh me in some way, we, I'm inviting you to do that. I think it's interesting. This guy doesn't come to Jesus like the official. The official comes and he finds Jesus. Jesus comes and finds this dude. We don't know his name. He's just the paralytic, the paraplegic. 
And whether you want to approach Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't know, maybe I got something and it is, it is draining me of life, whether it's my work, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's some kind of worry. Like, Jesus, I just want to ask you to refresh that and bring Sabbath rest into my life. But I also want you to understand this, that even if you don't ask Jesus, Jesus will find you. Like, we've got a God who seeks. He will find you, he will hunt you down, and he will give you life. (laughs) And sometimes he'll send his people as well, but Jesus will find you. He'll find you in whatever state you're in, and he will say, he'll show up, and everybody else will be like, I've been waiting for this moment. And you're like, I don't know why Jesus is here. And then Jesus will give you life. He will allow you to thrive. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And let's just, as they're coming up, let's just take a moment, just bow our heads and just ask the question, God, what have I been missing that I need in order to thrive? And just take a second, just, just to address Jesus, just to say to Jesus, just have a conversation with him. Like, Jesus, would you show me what I am missing that I need to thrive? Let's beat Jesus to the punch. Before he has to hunt you down to give you life, let's ask him for life. What do I need? Especially in this new year, what's a practice that I want to pick up? Or maybe what's something that I want to put down in this new year? And I I don't want to give you examples of things because I feel like the Spirit of God can put those things into our heads. And maybe you already have something in your head. And I'm just going to say, maybe that's the Spirit. Like, listen to that. But Jesus, what what is something that either I'm missing or doing that that is taking away life? What do I need to thrive? I I just want you to write it down. Just write it down. Put put some kind of reminder of what that is because you you need to put together a plan. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing us. Thank you for being compassionate. Thank you for speaking on behalf of your Father so clearly to us. We follow you. We worship you. We make room in our hearts and in our church for you to do the work on us that you need to do. And we pray all of these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.